This is the midway point through our current preaching series about, uh, about the seven marks of a beautiful church. Uh, the first three that we just did over the last three weeks, we talked about worship, about spiritual formation, uh, about mission, those, those key elements of, really those are the what sermons, what is the church supposed to be doing? And the next four are kind of the how sermons, how is the church supposed to be doing this? And I don't think we give that nearly enough thought. Um, this topic today, or the, what we're going to talk about today, about a beautiful orthodoxy, what it means uh, what it means for a church to practice a beautiful orthodoxy. It's actually, uh, it's a term that was coined by a, a pastor named Mark Galley, but the idea has been around for a long time in a lot of different words and different, uh, in different forms under different names. I think beautiful orthodoxy is probably the best way to say it. Uh, uh, and as he says, as Pastor Galley says, in a post-Christian world of ugly orthodoxy and beautiful heresy, the church must find her way back to expressing a beautiful orthodoxy. And so our two passages that we're going to read together that hold those two ideas in tension. And hopefully we'll see that they are really kind of locked together, even though they're in very different parts of Paul's writings. First uh, Timothy three sixteen through 4, 5, and then we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13. So would you please, if you are able, one more time, stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's uh, intently listen now as God speaks to us. Uh, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, My first encounter, really, with the idea of beautiful orthodoxy was from reading a a 17th century mathematician, a guy named Blaise Pascal, uh, who had a radical conversion to Christianity, and he collected a bunch of thoughts. He actually wanted to write a book, uh, wanted to write a Christian theology book, but he died at 39 years old. And so after his death, someone collected all his thoughts together and put out a book called Penses, which means thoughts. It's kind of his random notes. And one one of the notes he said, he wrote was this, and this is, I heard... Uh, someone teaching on this, and it was, it was kind of, it was, it was transformational for me in my understanding of putting pieces together. It said, Pascal said, men despise Christianity. They hate it because they're afraid it may be true. Ooh. <laughs> uh, the cure for this is to first show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is. Notice the order. Show that it's not utter foolishness, then show how it's beautiful, and then once you convince people that it's beautiful and they wish it was true, then and only then will you be able to pierce the barriers of icy intellectual arguments against the faith to get someone to consider whether or not it's true. And that was absolutely my experience. Last week I told you guys, I told all of you about my prayer for the first, my first year after I had become, God had saved me from uh, total destruction of drug addiction. I was clear that it was God who did it. I absolutely wanted to believe in him and follow him. And I would sit every morning, I would wake up and get on my knees and pray, God, I will follow you in any way you want, please just don't let it be Christianity. I prayed that prayer every day. Uh, I absolutely, positively did not want Christianity to be true. And the reason was because I was afraid that it was. Uh, I was afraid that it was true. And so I secretly, I was secretly afraid it was true. And so what I did, and this was coming from being raised in the church and actually knowing for a fact that it was true, uh, but hitting this, in my early, early, early life, uh, I, I, I came to the place where I absolutely knew Christianity was true, uh, but I also absolutely knew that I couldn't do it because I believed that I had to live some kind of sinless, perfect life and that every time I fell into my old pattern of sin that I was condemned to hell again. And it was just psychologically terrifying to have that understanding of the faith. And so what I did at first was I just started, I, I said, my only the only out I could see from that psychological terror was to disprove the faith. And so I started reading against the faith and I slowly began to pile up on one side arguments of plausible deniability, meaning I would look at things about the scripture and find some way to make a hole in it or some way to look at it in a certain way that I could discount it. And on the other hand, I piled up hypothetical possibilities that supported the God who I wanted i.e. the God who would let me do whatever I wanted. 
And through that process, and, and I did that because that's what everyone does, um, <laughs> I did that, and, and, and through that, I was able to finally convince myself that I was far more spiritually advanced than those few pathetic Christians that I was misfortunate enough to run across. Uh, and so whenever one of those pathetic Christians came up to me and began to uh, try to evangelize me or argue uh, the faith for me, when they tried to even you know, give me good uh, apologetic arguments, when they came up and wanted to talk about Jesus or the historicity of the, re- uh, of the resurrection or the, uh, the absolute reliability of the New Testament... Uh, because I already knew it was foolishness, I didn't have any desire to waste any time looking deeply into it. It was just off of my back like water because I knew it was foolish. Not only that, not only did I knew it was foolish, I thought it was ugly and I wasn't going to be part of anything that was so ugly and oppressive and repressive uh, that had such a potential to hurt people in their freedom. Uh, I felt bad for them. Uh, I felt bad for them. Even began to feel pity for them. <laughs> that was kind of my attitude. People are evangelizing me. I would just feel so bad for people caught up in this awful delusion uh, that I would start telling. I would. I eventually reached the point. I would just tell people I was a Christian because I felt that would like ease their own moral suffering. Right? Oh, you're a Christian. Yes. And they could move on with their life, and I wouldn't have to. They wouldn't have to go through that awful mental duress of knowing, you know, that they weren't able to save me from hell. So anyways, all that, why were those arguments so powerless against me? They were powerless against me because I had no compelling reason to believe them. I thought they were wrong, that they were ugly, and had no conceptual reference point, or had no, no, never a presentation of why these things were beautiful. And not only that, I had, been, I had been approached in such a combative and argumentative manner so many times that I had all kinds of stories just racked up to, 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 to bolster up that belief. And not only that, I had tons of stories about hypo, you know, hypocritical Christians and, uh, and bad theology that I had a hold of that just shored up this belief that Christianity wasn't beautiful. And there was no... Uh, I had no obligation to look into it deeply because I already knew that to be true. Uh, And we in the 20th, 21st century church, uh, that is what we do. Um, We give truth first and then we expect people to see beauty, but that almost never works. Uh, The reality is that before anyone is ever willing to even consider whether something is true, they first have to be convinced that it's beautiful. Uh, And we don't do that very well. As a matter of fact, sometimes we're actually worse than that. We've come to think of the gospel as some kind of magic incantation. And all we do is just spit it out. We just spit out an accurate gospel, no matter how combative or rude or antagonistic or sinful it may be. And that that's 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 the, the end of our responsibility. If you don't get it, that's your fault, not my fault. I am absolved. I wash my hands of your blood. Uh, But Paul says no. Paul says we desperately need both beauty and truth if our mission in the world is going to be fruitful. And so 
the big idea of these two passages together is that is this, that our mission is to preach the truth to a world that hates it in the sacrificial beauty of love because that's what Jesus has done for us. Our mission is to preach truth to a world that hates it in the sacrificial beauty of love because that's what Jesus has done for us. Let's look at that first part. Our mission is to preach truth to a world that hates it. Now, when we say orthodox, what orthodox is just a, it's a word that means right belief. It means believing rightly, and it's not believing rightly according to what some men uh, in, up here say. It's believing, it's having your belief system be in accordance and in fidelity with reality as it actually is. It's believing true, what re, it's believing uh, that your beliefs about truth line up with what's really true. That's what orthodoxy really means. Um, there's a tragic consequence uh, sometimes from people who use hallucinogenic drugs in that they believe that they can fly. <clears throat> it happens all the time. It's, ter- it's awful, really. Um, it's an awful sad truth. They'll go to the top of a tall building or a bridge and, and, and they honestly and sincerely and absolutely believe that they can fly... Uh, it's not a masked suicide attempt. And when they, when they act on that truth, on their personal truth, they go off the bridge and plummet to their death. Why? Because their understanding of truth did not line up with reality and therefore it caused them to plummet <clears throat> to their doom because they, wrote, they believed the wrong thing. And that's why... That's why orthodoxy, that's why truth, that's why belief is so important. It's not just so that we can be in the cool kid club of good theology. It's not just so that we can uh, check off our intellectual boxes. It's because truth is like a safety line to reality and to life. Uh, it's It's a line, it's a safety line that keeps us tethered to reality so that we can think and act in accordance with it and... And in those moments when we decide to jump anyways, it'll hold us to the truth. And so that's why orthodoxy or truth is so, so important. Now in this first passage that we read, the first, the first Second Timothy passage, <clears throat> he, says three, he says two big things in that passage. He says first that, that truth is knowable through revelation. Now, we live in an age that completely discounts even the possibility of truth being known. And that's because we are about 150 years past the point when we, as a culture, as a society, uh, disconnected ourselves from any understanding of 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 a God that founded any sort of truth or morality or ethics in his character and in his being. And once that cord was severed, it became a free for all. You believe what you believe. You believe what you believe to be true because it's true for you. And there's no, there's, no, there's no hierarchy of truth because there's no transcendent God to found that in. What's true is, is what you want to be true. Really, that's what we teach people nowadays. Um, but Paul says that's not, that, that's not true, that there is truth, it's knowable, and it's knowable through revelation. All scripture is breathed out by God. He's not saying, he's not saying that, that, uh, 
that the apostles and the prophets had wrote down word for word a dictation from God. What he's saying, the big idea behind it is that the source behind revelation, behind Bible, is supernatural intelligence. Uh, that it was written through men with all the caveats that we need to put on that in their understanding of the world, uh, in the culture, and the intelligence that they had. Uh, There's all kinds of caveats we have to put on that, but God inspired them to speak truth to his people. And that's not just a naked assertion. We don't say, Bible's true because God says it is. That is backed up. It's backed up internally by prophecy, detailed prophecies of who Jesus would be, what he would do, uh, uh, detailed prophecies about the, the religion of Yahweh spreading across the whole face of the earth. Uh, all, all these streams, we've talked about all these streams of prophecies, internal cooperation that the book itself, the, the information in that book was given by a supernatural intelligence that was able to tell the end from the beginning. And since that's true, it means that that source of information is more reliable and more trustworthy than any human ideals, no matter how brilliant they may seem to us. It's more reliable to say, I will trust in this supernatural revelation of truth. And because it's written by men, it's also understandable. Some simple interpretive rules, and you can get the most, most of most of the Bible. There's some parts that are really hard, some parts that are really obscure, but for the most part, it's understandable to even even uneducated people can read the Bible and get the basic understanding of it, if you want. And so, look, if that's true, if that's true, if truth is knowable, if truth comes through revelation, if truth can be uh, understood, why is there so much conflict Why do so many people dismiss it? Why do so many people want to kind of pick and choose what they want out of it and not? Why do people feel free to be the judge over Scripture rather than allowing Scripture uh, to be the controlling force over their lives? And the answer, here the answer is given by Aladis Huxley. Anybody know who Aladis Huxley is? The science fiction writer, right? in the 50s, and this is, a, this is a quote from a very honest man. This is what he says. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. By that meaning, he means in inherent meaning in creation that we can naturally see and understand, uh, and also meaning given us by special revelation in the Bible. He had reasons for discounting that, there, that that was true, that that was reliable. And the reasons, he said this, he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able to have, with not much difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in this world is not concerned exclusively with the problems of academics. The philosopher who finds no meaning in this world is also concerned to prove that there are no boundaries on why he should not personally do as he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in a way that they find most advantageous to themselves. Or, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Super honest guy. What did he just say? 
you just gave us the, 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 we, the thought process. We think, how do people come to their beliefs? How do people come to their truth? Well, we, re, we use our rational minds and we think through all the possibilities. We see which one is more reasonable and then we adhere to that. That almost never happens. The reality is, desire, he wanted to do as he wanted to do. He wanted to have sexual and political freedom and liberation. And then two, he harnessed his rational mind to find satisfying reasons for the assumptions. He used his rational mind to then go out and find arguments of plausible deniability and arguments of hypothetical possibility and stack them up. Uh, And then three, he achieved the goal, which was sexual and political liberation. He jumped. I have a member of our family that was leaving the faith, came to talk to me, agreed to meet with me three or four times. First, first meeting, sat down, uh, and we started talking. Before I even got into any kind of like apologetics discussions, the first thing she said was, I wish it wasn't true because then I could just do what I wanted. And I was like, we're done. I knew we were done. I knew we were done right there. It didn't matter what kind of airtight philosophical arguments I could give her at that point. She was already out the door because that's what she wanted. Desire is the controlling force. It marshals the rational mind to find plausible reasons and so that it can then do what it wants. That's why people disagree. That's why people are in conflict. It's not because orthodox teaching isn't clear. The important things are very clear. It's because people hate truth, because it restricts what we want to do, and we have the ability to delude ourselves with our rational mind. One of my professors, Mike Horton, says to use our reason irrationally in order to make the excuses we need to go out and do what we want to do, which is jump, untethered from the safety of orthodoxy and truth. And that's all, I mean, as a pastor, I hate that. I hate that. I hate that because it means the people that you love, that you minister to, that you grow together close with, uh, sometimes jump. Uh, I'm not super concerned about the world pushing in on us, you know? I mean, although that's the fuel behind what's drawing people out of the church and causing them to jump into hardship and suffering. Uh, It's just hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to deal with. It's what what Paul says to Timothy when he says, be sober-minded and endure suffering. Uh, he's He's talking about persecution that's coming to the church because he's holding to truth and people hate him for it. People want to snuff it out. People want to get rid of it. That which is not God is constantly trying to snuff out that which reminds it that it is not God. And so we live in a world that's hostile. We live in a world that's confrontational. Huge sections of the church are breaking off like ice shelves and floating out into the open sea. The world around us is growing more and more hostile. The world around us is becoming more and more convinced that good is evil and evil is good. 
uh, and pressing on us, and that is the reality that we live in. The call to the church is no matter how bad that may get, you preach truth. Because if the church doesn't preach truth, listen, the church stops preaching truth tomorrow, no one else is going to do it. It'll be gone. That's what salt and light means. That whole passage really means don't, don't ruin your witness to the point where you can't be a witness, which is what we're going to talk about next. Uh, and so because that's true, because the world is firing in on us, there's this constant temptation to return fire, to act in kind, to assume the principles of the world, to fight, to argue, to debate, to present, or uh, just because we're hurt, we get angry and afraid and just dismiss and throw truth like a brick and then absolve ourselves of any, rely- any liability in it, but we can't, we can't do that. Paul says you can't do that because our mission is to preach the truth to a world that hates it in the sacrificial beauty of love. Uh, one of my friends sent me a short film <clears throat> in preparation for our class on sexual ethics. Uh, this woman named Grace, it's great, really a great film. This woman named Grace, uh, she's a very committed lesbian. She grew up in the church. Her father, uh, or she grew up in the Episcopal church. Her father was an Episcopal priest. Uh, and she put this movie together wanting to reach across uh, different uh, denominational lines and talk to different denominations of Christianity to like open up conversation. It was, <clears throat> uh, and she talked to, in the, in the movie, two basically, basically two people. First, she talked to a guy named Ron Israel, who was the leader of one of those groups that show up at uh, the pride parade or wherever with the giant, with the big signs and the bullhorns shouting the gospel at people. <clears throat> uh, and, af- and, and she talked with him uh, and she, did, she characterized him as the guy who comes out with bullhorns and tacky signs. And at the end of their, at the end of their, their you know, conversation together, the conclusion was, she said, people like Ron just don't rock me anymore. They're so devoid of love. It doesn't rock me at all. And then she went and met uh, with Jackie Hill Perry. Now, Jackie Hill Perry is a, is a hip-hop artist spoken word artist, former lesbian, who's now married to a man, has kids, made the decision, even though she still struggled with same-sex attraction, even though it was still a difficult thing, uh, she, understanding a beautiful orthodoxy, saw that the beauty of Christ and the beauty of what Christ offers us was worth denying self in order to honor Jesus with her life and with her body. It's beautiful. And in that interaction... She like approached uh, Grace with this from that perspective, led with beauty, led with Christ, led with uh, why uh, uh, her understanding of a beautiful orthodoxy was worth sacrificing for. And the conclusion at the end of it was Grace was rocked. I mean, she didn't change her position, but you could see in the movie, she was rocked by that. She was very complimentary of Jackie Hill. There's one point... I don't know, how, she made it in the edit of the film. She was in the car and she was like, am I even gay? Am I even gay? Like really, you could see that she was really struggling with this. And of course she said, of course I'm gay. Of course I'm gay. And she walked out of the car. But it rocked her for a minute. She being surrounded by ugly orthodoxy 
was able to just dismiss it and be drawn into a beautiful heresy. And when she was confronted with a beautiful orthodoxy, it cut right through all of her little reasons, all of her deniability, plausible deniability, and hypothetical possibilities into the heart, and she actually considered it. Considered it. We can't change hearts. We can't save anybody. But God does call us to be wise and to figure out and to do our best to cut into hearts with the beauty of Christ so they will consider the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about in the first Corinthian passage. Uh, It really ties together because he says, if I have all knowledge and all wisdom, if I have precise theology, if I have seminary degrees, if I am an upholder of evangelical orthodox theology, is that enough? Can I present that in any old way I want and have it be effective? And Paul says, no, you can have all knowledge, you can have all wisdom. It means nothing. This passage, the First Corinthians, is so deep. <clears throat> we can't really hit all of it. But I'm going to hit some of the key words in here to show you what he's really talking about. This is a description of love, uh, the beauty of love, which is a description of God's character, but it's also Paul's exhortation to us as the church as to how we should be operating in the world. This is the how part. So when you think, when you read this, you're going to be tempted to think about yourself and think, ah, uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But for right now, think of the church. Think of the church and how we exemplify these things. Uh, okay, think church. Patient. Patient means consistent self-control and even-temperedness in the face of provocation. How do we do on that? Being kind. It's not just an attitude. Kind is an action. It's to provide something beneficial for someone as an act of kindness. It's an action. How does the church do that? To our own people and to the world around us. How do we serve the world around us? It does not envy. It means to have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or successes, including political opponents, including other churches, uh, including other organizations. It does not... It does not boast. It doesn't heap up praises for one's own achievements and successes. It doesn't gloat over its precise theology or perfect piety, or precise biblical worship. Uh, it is not arrogant, which means being puffed up with an exaggerated conception of self. We are the best. Actually, it literally means blow up. <laughs> Don't blow yourself up. <laughs> it is not rude. This is a tricky one, because it doesn't mean uh, to be rude in the way we mean. It means to act in defiance of social and moral standards with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the rich in the church being completely ambivalent to the poor and acting in a shameful manner. Uh, And the other time he uses the word, he's talking about women in the church who are blurring the social distinction between sexes. Uh, It does not insist on its own way That's literally, it says, seeks oneself not. Almost sounds like Yoda. Seeks oneself not. How many ways do we seek our own 
comfort, our own cultural preferences in ways that exclude other people. It's not irritable. It means it doesn't get upset or provoked when people wrong us. Uh, not resentful. It doesn't keep mental record of events for the sake of some future action, slander, mistrust, disdain, fight ammo. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It means that's really means a state of happiness or well-being uh, with injustice. The word really means injustice. It means being complicit or standing by and being perfectly okay while we see known injustices happening in the world around us. How do we do on that? Uh, And finally, it rejoices with the truth. Rejoices with everything listed above. Uh, Not just a begrudging obedience to it, but a real rejoicing in the character of God and what he's called, and the and the, and the holiness that he's called us as a church into, which is, which is leading us into joy. So what, listen, this is what Paul says. This is what Paul says, basically, to put all that together. He says, when we, the church, when we do anything collectively, out of pride, out of fear, out of selfish ambition, out of self-interest, out of anger, out of envy, out of resentment, out of callousness, that we end up stripping the truth of its power. When we engage in divisive political power and striving, when we shame culture because of its sin, when we engage in condescending debate, when we form spiritual cliques, no matter how many hundreds of years old those cliques may be, we are an annoying loud noise, a clanging symbol. We are nothing and we gain nothing. All power is stripped away from us and our message and our witness in the world. Uh, which just means that if we try to do ministry uh, in, an, in a grotesque and distorted way from the image of God, that it will just appear to the world like one more scam coming down the highway. I had a, had a friend who, her husband was an unbeliever, was on his deathbed. I knew a pastor went to talk to him, gave him the standard apologetic arguments, and the guy's response was, why should I believe you? a hundred other hucksters trying to shill their faith on me. Why would I even, why would I believe you? You'd never have the opportunity of seeing the beauty of Christ leading so that he might consider whether or not it would be true or not. And so we have to lead with love. We have to lead with sacrificial love uh, because that's what Jesus did for us. And that's the third point. Now maybe you're I'm looking at all your long faces right now. <laughs> Super convicting. Super convicting. As a personal study, to read through all these things, be like, this is the, what love is. This is me. If you add, add your name to that list and read through it. Rob is consistent in his self-control and even temperness in the face of provocation. 
Right, Nisa? <laughs> Rob, is, <clears throat> Rob provides something beneficial for someone as an act of kindness. Rob does not have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or successes. Rob heaps up. Rob uh, does not heap up praises for my own achievements and success. I'm not puffed up with an exaggerated conception of self. I don't seek myself not. I don't get upset or provoked when people wrong me. I don't keep a mental record of events as fight ammo against my wife for later. I don't rejoice at wrongdoing. I don't stand by in complicity with known injustices around me. You read that list and you apply it to yourself as well as the church. You find out quickly you just fail utterly, miserably. We all do this, so now what? Well, praise God, the beauty of the gospel is that we are not saved based on our ability to create a beautiful orthodoxy. It's a call that we're obligated to do because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us, because that is the character of the God we serve. And that's what's really the most beautiful part of that second passage is that um, it is speaking. Uh, what the, 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 really, the beautiful thing about the passage is that it speaks so clearly about how beautiful Jesus is. This is a picture of the character of the God that we serve. And it's a picture of the character that we're inviting people into relationship with. And you plug Jesus' name in there, and all of a sudden, it makes perfect sense. Jesus is consistent in self-control and even temperedness, even in the face of provocation. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. (laughs) Out of the overflow of his heart, that's what came out when he was being hit with provocation. Jesus is constantly providing beneficial things for us as acts of kindness. Jesus does not have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. He doesn't keep up praises for himself, his own achievements and successes. He gives all glory to the Father. He is not puffed up with an exaggerated self-conception. He doesn't act in defiance of moral standards. He doesn't insist on his own way. He is not resentful. He doesn't keep mental records of our sins. I don't remember your sin anymore. He does not rejoice with wrongdoing that seeks justice in the world. He brought justice. He took justice upon himself. And he rejoices with everything that's good and true and beautiful and calls us into the same. Uh, That is, it's the character of a God who gave himself for his people. It's an utterly unique religious idea in all the world. It is so strange and it is so counterintuitive to how we think about what God must be and how God must act, that that's a proof of its truth. We would never think of that. We would never think of a concept of God that when we profaned his name among the nations would respond to us by cleansing us with his own blood, by giving us a new heart and a new spirit, by giving us his spirit within us to begin to cause us to walk in his ways, to walk in the beauty of sacrificial love. That's the gospel, that's the response God has to us and it costs him the cross to do that. And so look, this is what we should be telling people. (laughs) 
this is what we should be speaking of. We need to, we need to speak about sin. We need to speak about death. We need to speak about hell. We need to speak about the consequences of abandoning the beauty of God as the backdrop, but as the backdrop for the message of salvation in Christ, in the beauty of God. Everyone knows what we're against. Trust me on that. We don't have to keep telling them. They all know what we're against, but very few people know what we're for. Very few people know that we are the message uh, that we are to give them is about Jesus. It's about forgiveness from sin. It's about the erasing and the eradication of all the guilt and shame that we carry with us. It's about the freedom in the spirit. It's about having new life, new spiritual life that we never had before. It's about being adopted by God into his family as a beloved child. It's about having access to the powers of the age to come even now. It's about intimacy with God. It's about being heirs of the new creation of heaven and earth. It's about knowing deeply a God who loves us so much that he became man and died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin and then he gives us his righteousness, gives us a new heart, puts his spirit within us so that we can begin to walk away from the destructive desires of our heart. That's what we're offering the world, and that's what we need to lead with. And then, and only then, will people consider or be willing to think that the suffering that they're going to experience in the fight against sin is worthwhile, because they're trading it in for something that is so much better. So much better. Paul ends this section with the, this claim that love never fails. It bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. It's basically saying, what he's saying is that we can believe, we can have so much certainty in the righteousness and the justice of God to come through in the end that we can endure any kind of suffering in the world that it might give to us and still, instead of responding in like kind, respond in love. When our enemies strike us, we can respond in love and in care and in concern and in mercy and in grace. Um, Let me close with this. This is a quote from Gordon Fee. He says this perfectly. Love has that tenacity in the present buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables one to live in every kind of circumstance and continually to pour ourselves out in behalf of others. Paul's own ministry was a perfect example of such love, and I pray that our ministry in Respres would also be an example of that kind of beautiful orthodoxy as we hold fast to the truth, but we do it and present it in the beauty of sacrificial love. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is deeply convicting. Lord, if we never ran across parts of scripture that <laughs> contradicted us, we would know it's not true. And so, Lord, your word is given to us to, to reprove, to correct, to help us to see our sin, to help us to see our shortcomings, but not to condemn us in them. You do it because you are disciplining us as a loving father, helping us to grow into the beauty of the likeness of Jesus, that we are secure in our foundation. We have been saved and now in your kindness and grace and mercy you are also showing us our sin and helping us to grow. So we pray, Lord, that you would grow us.
Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us by any means necessary, no matter how painful it may be, as fast and as hard as you think we can take it, so that we would receive the peaceable and beautiful fruit of righteousness and have just the smallest taste of the splendor of holiness, which you will give us in full at the return of Christ. Help us to reflect who you really are and who Jesus really is in the beauty of your character to the world uh, as we present truth. Uphold us in that and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.